Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, with 11 trucks striking overpasses this year and 13 last year, why are penalties so lax in our province? Plus, should parental permission be required for transgender and non-binary students to use different names or pronouns at school? And we look at the impact short-term rentals are having on housing in BC. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today, delegates passed three resolutions addressing their concerns about the rollout of drug decriminalization policies in the province. The most contentious debate, of course, occurred um, uh, during a vote which came around the request for the province to further regulate the possession and use of illicit drugs in places where children gather, uh, including bus stops and beaches, which goes beyond park spaces. Now, you may recall uh, the federal government gave the province approval for uh, changes to the uh, decriminalization program earlier this month, which banned illicit drug possession within 15 meters of playgrounds, spray parks, wading pools, and skate parks. That started on September 18th. Now, Langley City Mayor Nathan Pahal spoke out against the resolution today, and he joins us now. Mr. Pahal, thank you for speaking to us today. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, Well, lots to talk about today at UBCM and uh, a lot of uh, resolutions and conversations. Uh, A lot of conversation around uh, drug decriminalization. uh, And part of the conversation was a motion where um, delegates were debating whether to further regulate the possession and use of illicit drugs in places where children gather. And they wanted to expand that to include bus stops and beaches uh, and uh, beyond just park spaces. Uh, you spoke against that. Speak to me why you did that. Well, I think there's sort of the theory in what you're talking about in decriminalization, and then there's the on-the-ground reality. So prior to the pilot, uh, all these drugs were illegal, uh, but you would find that uh, just to the sheer uh, human nature of it, uh, there wasn't any, um, no, no police officer is going to arrest someone uh, who's addicted uh, suffering on the streets and put them in jail, nor will Crown Council or the courts uh, put somebody with jail time. So really, decriminalization is really an acknowledgement of what's already happening today. Uh, what are you seeing in your community? So Langley City, uh, of course, you know, we follow and are part of all provincial regulation. We had all these rules on the books, whether it was the actual illegal uh, substance uh, use stuff that's obviously provincial or federal, but even within our own bylaws, you know, we don't allow um, what we would call um, uh, illicit drugs, I guess would be what was written in our, our bylaw, but really it's just unregulated drugs in general. Now, again, that's on the books, but does that have a meaningful impact on the number of people who are dying due to toxic drugs? Is it actually getting people into treatment? Uh, no, it is not. Uh, now, the, the federal government did give the province approval for changes to the decriminalization program earlier this month, uh, where basically illicit drugs were banned within 15 meters of uh, playgrounds, spray parks, wading pools, skate parks, where essentially kids, uh, kids would play. Uh, I understand your point, uh, but do you think sometimes you need to bring in this type of uh, program 
these rules in just so the public at least feels a little safer and are more content with the experiment of decriminalization, that perhaps you need to go through this process that does include bus stops and perhaps other locations so that the, the public indeed feels safe or at least perhaps it may be the perception of safe, but do feel safer be, that these rules are that these rules are in place. Absolutely. And so when we had the conversation about playgrounds, I think uh, that's something that I would be supportive of. Now, again, on the ground reality is uh, folks aren't consuming um, unregulated drugs on the swing sets uh, when kids are there. But I appreciate that concern, and I was definitely supportive of that. But when you move it again to the the next level, um, it's really just, you know, without saying it, going back to the original position, regardless, this is all sort of ideology and not on-the-ground reality. So we can have these conversations about should things be, you know, decriminalized or criminalized, at the end of the day, though, we haven't been throwing people in jail for small possession of uh, uncontrolled uh, drugs. And again, it's not solving the problem. If this solved the problem, we would have no problems today. It would have been solved 25 years ago. Mm-hmm. The fact on the ground is that people are dying on our streets and people do not have access to treatment and the mental health care support that they need. That is the real issue. Uh, now, some have said, look, uh if the treatment centers were there, if that other wraparound service was there, uh, they might be able to get be- get behind this. Do you think it was a mistake to bring in something up like like decriminalization when some have argued we just don't have the resources or, or at this point haven't set aside the resources for more treatment centers, more wraparound services, that inevitably whatever uh, comes of this decriminalization program for the next three years, it will ultimately fail because the other things aren't in place. Well, absolutely. I mean, I think what the problem is, is decriminalization and the conversation around it is a distraction from the real issues that we're experiencing in our communities. So, you know, let's not worry about decriminalization right now. Let's actually worry about making sure people have access to safe supply, that people aren't dying every day on our streets and in our homes, and that people who need the help, the mental health um, care, the detox, the access to uh, replacement therapies, that's what we need. And uh, so that's where I'd rather focus on instead of just having these sort of ideological conversations about criminalization or decriminalization that, to your point, doesn't change anything on the ground. Mm-hmm. Uh, but do you think, uh, and, I, and I don't mean to focus on this, but I, just based on what I've been hearing on air, and you know, I think people are generally very compassionate, empathetic, but if you don't have some sort of enforcement, you don't have the treatment centers and the other wraparound services already set in place, or at least uh, you know a set of rules put in place that this is where we're going with decriminalization. I think the public would come would come along to this conversation and and be willing to buy in. But don't you set up this program, the decriminalization conversation, to complete failure? Because those other processes and other resources haven't been set in place. I just don't know after three years how authorities can say this is a complete success uh, and not many members of the public buying it. When you go, we've decriminalized, but are we anywhere further? That's, the, I guess, the core question at the end of the day. Yeah. Do, you, do you think we're already setting this program up to fail? I, I agree. So right now, with decriminalization, without um, safe supply, without access to treatment, it's not going to do anything, and things are going to stay where they are or get worse. I agree with you. Mm-hmm. Um, in your community, uh, it's a small community when it comes to size, but it is fast growing. Uh, I was out there not too long ago. Um, is, is that the core issue? Is, is it still 
lack of resources, lack, lack of treatment centers, all of those types of things. I think you have like a third or fourth largest homeless population right now in British Columbia. Yeah, um, so I can't comment on BC. I know the numbers in Metro Vancouver. It's the third largest unhoused counted population uh, in our region, which is unfortunate. Uh, we are the eastern uh, urban core, and we're 10 square kilometers. So it's really very pronounced, and it's something that as a community uh, we've been trying to address for many years. And what we've come to right now is working on getting all our nonprofit agencies together Fraser Health, and really it wasn't being managed by the city, Mm -hmm. uh, but we've come to the realization that if we're going to move forward in a meaningful way, in a coordinated way, uh, that actually delivers meaningful change, our municipality is going to have to take the lead on that coordination. And that's what we're working on now. We're trying to identify those gaps and then together as a municipality with nonprofits, faith community, our citizens, bring forward to the provincial government and those that have the power to make change. These are the challenges in our community. This is what we agree on. This is what we as a citizenry, as our nonprofits, as people with that lived experience that need the support, uh, want to see delivered in Langley City. And I think that's going to be really powerful, and we've never done that before. Mm. I think that's going to meaningfully move the dial to get resources that are actually going to help uplift people in our community, stop the deaths, and get people the treatment that they want. Nathan, uh, always great to chat with you. Thanks for your time today. Look forward to speaking to you soon. Yeah, it was great chatting. India told Canada to reduce its diplomatic staff and stopped issuing visas to its uh, citizens today as a rift widened over Ottawa's allegations that New Delhi may have been involved in the killing of Hardeep Singh Nidra, a 45-year-old Canadian citizen who um, was gunned down outside a Gurdwara in uh, Surrey. Uh, Mr. Nidra was a plumber who was born in India but became a Canadian citizen in 2007. Well, joining me now is Gurpreet Singh. He's an independent journalist and talk show host for Spice Radio right here in Vancouver to talk a little bit about uh, the fact that the Indian government will be reducing its diplomatic staff and stopping the issuing of visas. Uh, Mr. Singh, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate that. Well, it's September. Uh, tell me what impact the just the the Indian um, consulate stopping issuing visas means for our sizable South Asian population here. Well, uh, there's a lot of anxiety within the South Asian community. I've been receiving calls from people who are wondering what's going to happen. I mean, people who have travel plans, people who are Canadian citizens, but they do not hold OCI or long-term visa. So they are all very concerned. So they just want to know how it's going to impact them. Mm-hmm. So I only tell them that you better ask Consul General India office. I don't have clear-cut answers, but I can tell you the people who have OCI, as far as my understanding goes, they shouldn't be concerned. But people And just to clarify for our audience, OCI is the Overseas yeah, Citizen of India, so it's a visa, exactly. but it, it, you don't have voting rights in India, but you can travel to India. It's much easier to travel when you have the OCI card. Absolutely. If you have OCI, then you don't need that. You can easily go to India whenever you want to come back. But uh, people are still very concerned because during farmers' protests, there were some uh, revocations of OCI, people involved in some kind of activity which India didn't like, right? Mm -hmm. So people are concerned. So definitely when this kind of news comes in the media, everyone who is planning some kind of uh, visit to to their home country, they all get alarmed. So that's why the anxiety is there. 
and that anxiety is understandable because soon the Diwali season is hitting in, right? Mm-hmm. And the uh, holiday season is hitting in. So people do have plans in advance that they, they want to go attend marriages, weddings, and family functions. Mm-hmm. So everybody's concerned right now. And, and let's be honest here. I mean, it's a busy time of the year. Uh, it used to be just probably late, you know, November, December, January, February, which were busy seasons. And now it's pretty much uh, starting now. It's a busy season for, for travel because the community is so large. Um, you know, I can see this going on for, let's just say, a couple of weeks. But, I mean, this is going to fundamentally impact uh, those who travel to India and a significant chunk of them for a while. I mean, if this is a, goes on for a couple of months or three months, it's a huge impact on, on, mm. on the South Asian community here. Right. That, no, definitely. And we have to figure out why it is happening like this. I mean, of course, uh, because of the current environment between Canada and uh, India, the political environment isn't that cozy. It's a hostile environment. That's why it's happening this way. But uh, there are speculations out there. Maybe uh, it's because uh, an Indian government is trying to exert some kind of pressure on Canadian government through its uh, uh, expatriates in Canada or diaspora. Mm-hmm. Because everybody will be after Trudeau. That why did you made that make that statement? You has put us uh, into this kind of situation. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, there are some genuine concerns because the supporters of Khalistan have been organizing demonstrations and protests outside Indian consulate, and the one is coming up soon on 25th of September. Yeah. So there are some concerns uh, within the diplomatic circle that anything can happen. As you understand, yes, uh, the police has already increased its presence. Uh, close to the Indian consulate in Vancouver. So they are keeping an eye. Mm-hmm. That's why uh, we are hearing these kind of stories. Now, look, at the end of the day, Canadians bring, uh, like any snowbirds, we have a lot of Punjabi snowbirds, uh, other uh, snowbirds from other parts of India that go back for four, five months at a time, bring, mm-hmm. you know, spend a lot of money in that country, invest a lot of money in that country. I mean, do you think the Indian government would be willing to go to do this for six months? Because these expats these visitors bring in lots of money and investment in that country and spend dollars with a lot of small businesses in those countries. Is the Indian government willing to say, you know what, we'll, we'll, we'll set it out for an entire season for six to eight months when the bulk of these tourists come and we'll just live with it and we'll just ban Canada. It's okay. We'll live with that, that cost. Yeah, no, definitely. It's a very good question. I mean, it's not a wise decision at all. If you are linked this on for an indefinite period of time, so certainly, India government will have to look into this possibility. I mean, if people are coming in, not bringing in money, what's the point? Yeah. But but here is the thing, yes. You know that uh, there are people within the community right now who are also questioning Trudeau, just like the Indian media. I mean, not everybody is on the same page. There are people who are opposed to Khalistan. There are people who support Khalistan. There are people who support Modi. There are people who sympathize with Hadip Sinajar. But in the in the meantime, the Canadian uh, government is under a lot of pressure to give evidence for what Mr. Trudeau has said. Yeah. So in a way, Indian government is trying to create this kind of environment. This is the feeling of many people within our community. Indian government is trying to create this kind of situation where everybody will after Trudeau, they will start asking Trudeau, "What what the hell are you doing? When are when I could produce the evidence? Because we are suffering. We are being made to suffer because of your statement." Yeah. So in a way, it's it's a it's a pressure tactic being used by the Indian government. But the, Indian, but the end of the day, whether you agree with Khalistan or not, or what Mr. Niger was saying, one of our citizens was gunned down and killed, according to evidence yeah. the prime minister has been given by our national security apparatus. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, do you think overall, 
and you know whether you support, support or not support Khalistan or any of those conversations, um, is that the underlying thinking still that look I mean, one of our citizens was killed, whether you support his his or her view or not, that that is fundamentally wrong. Or are people yes. sort of beyond that now and saying, wait a minute, this happened, it's unfortunate, but look, i got to get on with my life. I'd like to travel back to the, to the motherland once in a while. See, people and the society are generally pragmatic. Everybody wants to have a very good life. Nobody really cares about uh, the uh, political issues. Mm-hmm. But in this particular case, then it is affecting everyone. You, your travel plans are being affected. Your family relations are being affected. Because some people have to also go to see some of the relatives who are uh, on the deathbed or maybe somebody is uh, uh, ailing. So people need to go and visit them, right? Mm-hmm. So they, they will have some genuine concerns. They will definitely be bothered that why I have to pay a price for what is happening between India and Canada. And But, but human rights concerns are also, also very genuine concerns. You cannot brush them aside. People are really concerned that a Canadian citizen has been killed mm-hmm. and apparently some foreign powers are involved, so they are still looking for answers. But uh, whatever may be the case, uh, uh, the Indian government's decision is actually going to exert more pressure on Trudeau to produce some kind of evidence or to prove that some kind of action is going on on the ground, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, just just a statement, and after that, this kind of situation is not going to end soon. The story is not going to die pretty soon. People will be asking for some answers, some explanation. Uh, Singh, in the meantime, oh, Gurpatan Singh Pannu, who the leader of Six for Justice, who recently made a statement which is uh, which is totally biased and prejudiced against Hindus, mm-hmm. it has created a lot of uh, fear and uh, anxiety within the South Asian community, and people feel they are responsible for this this kind of mess. It has given the Indian government an excuse to reduce the diplomatic service. And it is affecting the people at the end of the day. Mr. Singh, uh, thank you for your time. It is a complex issue. Look forward to chatting with you soon because I don't think this issue is going away anytime soon. Thank you. No, not at all. Thank you so much, Jess. Well, Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe uh, not, too long ago, not too long ago said he was ready to use the notwithstanding clause to, pr- to protect a new rule requiring parental permission for transgender and non-binary students to use different names or pronouns uh, at school, it's in the face of a court challenge which brought which was brought against a new education policy. Now, the use of uh, the notwithstanding clause uh, is used very rarely, but the not- notwithstanding clause is a provision in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms that allows federal, provincial, and territorial governments to pass laws that override certain charter rights. Uh, for up to five years. Now, the conversation at its core is whether or not a student uh, uh, and how they self-identify in schools and whether parents should be involved in that conversation. Uh, A landmark uh, 2018 study published in the Journal of Adolescent Health found transgender youth who are able to use their preferred names and pronouns reported a 34% drop in suicidal thoughts and a 65% decrease in suicide attempts. Uh, This is part of that broader conversation, cultural conversation that is going on. It was part of the uh, protest yesterday as well that we saw across uh, British Columbia. Joining me now to talk a little bit about um, what Saskatchewan is considering uh, and the broader cultural conversation is our our show contributor, Jerry Mayer Judson. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I've been wanting to have this conversation for a while because, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think we sometimes tiptoe around it as Canadians because we're polite. Yes. Uh, And I I also want to get away from sometimes the polarized conversation that you hear 
out on the streets in the protests yesterday. Yes. Or, or on are on talk shows where they yell at each other all the time, which I don't <laughs> like either. Oh, don't discount that yet. No, I'm just kidding. We don't yell at each other here. So first of all, uh, let's uh, talk about the issue of self-identifying. Yeah. Uh, let's put Saskatchewan uh, aside. How yeah. do you identify yourself? So um, this is feels deep in the weeds, but I identify as agender. I just identify as someone that does not have a particular gender affiliation. So um, I guess it's close to non-binary. This Non-binary. Is, yeah, okay, same. so so if if I'm identifying you, it would be they them. Yes, I use uh, they she out and about because I understand like they them is a preference. Yeah. Um, it's my stronger preference of the two. But if I do get called she because I look pretty feminine, I, I adopt a bunch of feminine stuff. Um, so it's like I am at Denny's and I order pancakes and I get waffles. I'm like still going to eat the waffles, but I'm like oh that's not quite what I ordered, but that's all right. Same stuff, different iron. But uh, and and and. I, I I know that when 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 you join the show, but mm. I tell you, just uh, when you and I talk, sometimes I've thrown in she. Yeah, that's fine. It's man, it's not like you've said jazz. You're wrong, and I'm mad at you. But, yeah, never. You know, <laughs> no, you haven't. You're, you're you're fabulous to work with. But but it, it, and I and I look at myself because it is a complete not a 180 degree turn, but it is different in the way I view the world. Yeah, right for sure. Yeah, in regards to how we view our colleagues. Um, when did you know? that you wanted to self-identify as they, them? Um, I think I, so I'm just about 29 now. I was about 20 years old when I just, I don't know, I felt psychically like something was wrong, I guess. Hmm. Um, and I was like, I don't know, I feel bad all the t- like mentally all the time. I don't know what this is. And I uh, talked to one of my friends at the time. Um, at the time, she was using they, them pronouns. And she was like, hey, why don't you change your pronouns on Facebook to something gender neutral? See how that grabs you. Mm-hmm. And I did. And I was like, oh, no, that feels, that feels a little bit more correct maybe there's something to this and it just uh it feels nicer it feels like a square peg in a square hole when uh yeah when i have their correct pronouns used because when the incorrect pronouns are exclusive like exclusively used it just feels like a circled peg in the square hole how did what what was high school and junior high like for you in regards to identity i mean it's a difficult time for uh, any person growing up yeah. <laughs> uh, high school and middle school and all that yeah but, but what was it like for you um for me I was I was already weird I was uh I was a pretty fringe person like I was a everyone I wasn't like bullied or anything like that more severely than the next guy but uh I was already a fringe person I looked weird I had weird hair I had weird makeup mm-hmm. so I think it was part and parcel um I was uh yeah I don't know I was fringe and weird but this is a good little segue because I think school exists outside of the lecture time in the classrooms because some people Mm. are concerned with that's the conversation that we're having is well what are they talking about in the classrooms what are they telling my kid or whatever and I understand that that's a concern but school is also the place where adolescents experiment with who they are it doesn't even matter if they are using different pronouns if they're using different names it comes down to how you're presenting yourself with your friends what you want to look like what you want to act like you're still figuring it out Mm -hmm. and so that's that's like not usually something we have a problem with teenagers doing or adolescents doing. But then when the pronouns come in, all of a sudden, who your kid is at school mm-hmm. is 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 at issue. Um, do you think uh, school would have been different for you if Soji had been brought in earlier? Uh, if Ooh. if the world of today, certainly the policies of today, the yeah. world of today, certainly the policies of today were there uh, when you were going through school, would it have been easier for you? Like 15 years ago, yeah. I, that's an interesting question. I know um, 
one time, I mean, I, can, I went to Catholic school too. So my experience is like a little bit different. Wow. It was a, yeah, it was a public <laughs> Catholic school at least. So it wasn't a private Catholic institution, but uh, yeah, I, but you know, so the, the policies and procedures there were certainly informed by a certain set of beliefs. It wasn't all that oppressive, but mm-hmm. I imagine it also wasn't as open a place as it could have been. Yeah. But, but you had a good experience through Catholic school. Oh yeah. More or less. More or yeah, less. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. More okay. or less. There was like some friction in, in junior high where, oh, it came out that, oh, is Jerry bisexual? And then my homeroom teacher got word of it. And then we had a very <laughs> awkward conversation of like, would you like to talk? <laughs> like, yeah. No, under no circumstances. No. <laughs> but, but maybe if we had sort of the, the terminology and all that kind of thing, um, more awareness about gender diversity when I was in school, maybe it would have been a better time and yeah. less confusing. And maybe it would have been earlier than 20. What do you think of this core issue where the the, the premier says he wants to bring in the notwithstanding clause mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, you know, because parents should have a right to know sure. how kids self-identify in school. And I once again want to reiterate that. Uh, landmark study in the Journal of Adolescent Health, yes. which was in 2018, that found transgender youth uh, were able to use their preferred name pronouns reported a 34% drop in suicidal thoughts and 65% decrease in suicide attempts. Now, I want to layer on uh, what the, the the Saskatchewan Premier said, that yeah. he's ready to use that not, with notwithstanding clause. Um, what do you think of that conversation? I think that on the one hand, I do sympathize with parents. I understand that you want to be involved in who your child is. You want to know your child. You want, you know, I understand that. Of course you do. You don't want to be blindsided all of a sudden um, and be, to, to learn that your child is a different person at school than they are at home. Um, but it is the cases where there, as much as we live in 2023, there are still homes where children who would want to use different pronouns than the ones that their parents gave them or a different name than the one their parents gave them. Mm-hmm those might not be safe homes for that child to self-express in. It might not be a safe place to go back to and a permission letter if that child, you know, was keeping these things to themselves for a reason and then a permission slip going home or a letter or a notice of some kind going home to their parents. I don't think that that is a great situation. So I think that it's with those, it's with the, like, it's a pretty minority situation, but with those in mind, I think is why people are scared, organizations are scared of of of, of uh, this notwithstanding clause being implemented. Yeah. I, you raised a very good point. You did a great job articulating that. I still have difficulty as a parent because mm-hmm. I want to know everything of my course. son is doing. And I struggle with that. I like to believe an open-minded individual and all that, but I do struggle with it. So I want to be no, honest about where yeah, I Yeah, no, of course, sit. of course you're concerned about your child and you want yeah. to know what's going on. Totally. And that, I think that's the challenge that we have. We're going to continue our conversation. Give us a call on the open line. I want to hear from you. Do you think, uh, should there be parental permission uh, required uh, for transgender and non-brave students to use different names or pronouns? At school, call me on the open line, 604-280-9898, 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell phone. We continue our conversation with Jerry Mayer Judson. Let's go to Adam and Langley. Hi, Adam. Hey, Jeff. Thanks. What a great conversation again you're having and can be difficult, so I appreciate you guys are having us. Um, my opinion is maybe a little bit all over the place. Uh, my oldest friend, I'm 41, mm-hmm. my oldest friend, transitioned at 39, um, struggled with addiction, mental health, all that kind of stuff growing up, and is happier than they've ever been before, is thriving in life. Mm-hmm. I personally lean more towards a more traditional and more conservative view of gender and ideology and stuff. Mm-hmm. But my personal belief, I don't really care as long as they're happy as an adult. When it comes to, 
to youth in schools, I think it's challenging. And just like I believe in a separation of church and state, mm-hmm. I believe in a separation of sexuality and state. I think that that's kind of a, a spot where, where parents need to lead um, until, you know, you're at an age where you can make the decision for yourself. Mm-hmm. I, I'm like you. I do struggle with the, the, the parents not uh, having a say. Yet you look at the study and the, and the rational individual and you would say, and I'm just one study and perhaps there's others as well, that, said, that says that, you know, uh, kids, uh, there's less suicides, uh, less attempts at suicides. Uh, you know, that, that is uh, part of the thing, I guess, part of the reason why they're doing what they're doing and, and, and these rules are brought forward. But like you, I do struggle with the fact, you know, what role do parents have, especially at this age? My son's in high school and, uh, and uh, you know, generally schooling has been great. I mean, I have nothing but good things to say, but you do get challenged by that. Uh, thank you for your call. I really appreciate that. It's the same thing. I mean, I think the challenge is... People understand what the studies say, and they recognize what we're doing, what we're doing. But that one issue of parents not knowing, yeah, it's a really big hurdle absolutely. for people to, to get over. Yes, and then school is just such a big part of your child's day and so influential about how they think and they feel. So I, I understand the parent perspective for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Let's go to James in Coquitlam. Hi, James. Hello. Hi, yeah, you're up. What's on your mind? Yeah, so you know what? I think the whole situation is getting perpetuated, right? Like all these pronouns, they should not even be in the curriculum, right? Like you either born, born a boy or a girl, let the kids play on the monkey bars. So I think it's a, it's a whole nother issue. You don't see these issues happening in other countries of the world where they don't perpetuate this stuff. So it's a very simple and very straightforward issue. But, but, uh, but uh, uh, James, one of the reasons I think these issues aren't perpetuated in other countries is I don't think people can be as free. Uh, and open with how they think uh, and and how uh, they express themselves, and that's part of it. I, I do understand where you're coming from, and some some societies are conservative, but one could also argue... Uh, maybe they're a little too conservative. Maybe people don't have access to this kind of information. Even adolescent people, even older people, even adults don't have access to that kind of information. I understand trepidation about maybe talking about it to very young kids and how do we deliver that because I'm not a teacher. I don't know what the curriculum materials look like. I don't know how we make these kids aware of these types of things. So I understand that there is concern. There's some weird, like I, I understand. I'm not going to fault anyone for having the beliefs that they do. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, when I lived in India, uh, there was a, a club not too far from my house, and they'd have a you know th- different theme nights, and one was catered to the, the gay community. Uh, but you didn't talk about it a lot; it was just there, right? And then, okay. And it's if a conservative. You know, you know. If yeah. you know, you know. And but it's much more in the open. Uh, marriages are allowed. All of those types of things. But it's still a conservative society. More needs to be done in that nation and many other nations. Um, so you're right. Other nations may say we don't have those issues. Well, you probably don't allow for that discourse to occur, where some people may wish to speak freely on that issue. Uh, let's go to Lori in North Vancouver. Hi, Lori. Hi, Jess. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you for calling. What's on your mind? I think that when it comes to youth experimenting with uh, pronouns and names, it's a natural uh, thing. That's what you do. They experiment with their sexuality. I don't think that should require parent consent. However, when it comes to life-altering, irreversible sex changes mm-hmm. that affects their lives for the rest of their lives, that absolutely must be done in co- collaboration with the parent. I think, uh, you know, the, the frontal cortex that governs this decision-making skills 
isn't fully developed until age 21. You have to be 19 years old to drink a beer. To have a life-altering sex change that may bring... Oh, Lori, I, I mean, think we... that's... Thanks for your Sorry. call, Lori. I appreciate it. I got your point. Um, your thoughts on that? I mean, I think you still would need parental yes, permission at, at, at a young age, yes, right? Yes, totally you do. Um, especially with if there was a, a transgender teenage boy um, and if uh, he wanted to, like, address his... If he wanted to... Uh, they call it top surgery is where you mm-hmm. get, rid of, if you get rid of breast tissue. If you wanted to do that, you would need parental consent. Uh, if you're 16 is the, is the least minimum age that you can get top surgery. And that's in conjunction with a team of medical professionals. That's with... Um, you have to go through some pretty intense therapy to make sure that this is in fact what you want. And then they do not do any genital sort of surgery. Um, they don't do any bottom surgery on minors at all. Full stop. At all. Wow. At all. Well, this is a, a, a difficult conversation and I know, you know, we're having it on a broad, loud level when out on the street, uh, sometimes online. I really appreciate you coming on because I think Thank you. most Canadians fit somewhere in the middle here. Yeah. There are things where you're, we ne- may not be comfortable with our culture just don't understand, and I think we only get there unless we sit down and talk about it. And Absolutely. I appreciate our callers as well. Good questions and good comments. We will come back to this issue because I think it's important to once in a while just have that conversation. Yeah. And I really appreciate you making time as oh, well. Oh, thank you for making time for me, Jazz. Our next guest has found some eyebrow-raising numbers regarding short-term rentals in BC. Dr. David Walksmith conducted a study that dissects the influence of commercial short-term rentals like Airbnb on BC's housing availability and cost. Dr. David Walksmith is an associate professor at McGill University School of Urban Planning. Dr. Walksmith, thank you for joining us today. It's my pleasure to be here. So what did your study specifically point out? So um, what I was trying to do was to understand what has been happening with short-term rentals in BC since the pandemic, Mm -hmm. and specifically kind of what impacts we've seen on housing. And the bottom line is that after several years of not a lot of travel happening and so not a lot of demand for short-term rentals, uh, business is booming again. And um, the Airbnb market in BC is now at an all-time high. And as a result, because a lot of that growth has come by taking long-term housing off the market, the result has been um, higher rents and housing costs for BC residents. And what kind of uh, increase are we talking about in, in, in rents? Yeah, so um, the, the, you know, different ways to put it. One, we could say that if we just look at 2022, mm-hmm. um, the, the average BC uh, neighborhood um, in a in kind of medium or large city, saw about a twenty dollar increase in monthly rent for you know for kind of every household you know on, like o- overall on average um, mm-hmm. because of the growth of short term rentals. Um, it's it's almost one fifth of all of the rent increases that that happened in the province last year. We can explain because of the growth of short term rentals. And any sense of what that means in dollars? Uh, in, in, in whether it's a one large number, what's that mean? Extra dollars or dollars out of a renter's pocket collectively in our province? Yeah, so collectively, we're probably talking something like $500 million. Um, you know, it could be as much as that. Uh, you, know, in, um, you know, about $10 billion was paid by, uh, in rent by BC households in 2022. Mm-hmm. And, and, and about, you know, $450, 500000000 million of that um, can be explained by short-term rentals. So this is a significant chunk of money. Uh, just based on those numbers alone, 
what should elected officials in, in this province, uh, we are having that broader conversation about uh, short-term rentals at the city of Vancouver, and of course the province in, in, in mere weeks said that they'll be bringing in legislation provincially to deal with short-term rentals, but what's the conversation or what should be the thinking right now amongst elected officials, just based on the numbers that you've given me? Yeah, it's a really great question. You know, when I've talked to elected officials in BC and elsewhere in, in the country, um, you know, I've often said that you know municipalities where the housing issues are really severe should really consider banning commercial short-term rentals. You know, allow home sharing. I think everybody thinks that's a good idea. You have some spare room in your house, you're out of town for the weekend, do what you want. But we shouldn't tolerate you know, full-time Airbnbs taking housing off the long-term market. Mm-hmm. I've always kind of directed that advice at, at cities. Um, but I think in BC, the problems are so widespread that I think it would be very reasonable for the province to take that same approach province-wide and just to say, we're going to welcome home sharing in BC, but if you're trying to take housing off a long-term market and operate a commercial short-term rental, no thanks. Hmm. Uh, the, the, the ban in New York, um, is that, is that the sort of the direction everybody should be heading then in your mind? Is that sort of a the, the bit of legislation we should all be looking at when it's just banning it? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, to be totally honest, I think that goes a little far. Um, New York has more or less said that you just can't operate an Airbnb. My perspective on this, and, you know, I think opinion should, it will differ is that if it's your own home, you live there and you're trying to make a little bit of extra money by renting out a spare room or renting the whole place out while, you know, while you're out of town, I think that's perfectly fine. And I honestly think that's a win-win for communities. You know, you earn a bit of extra money, someone has a place to stay, sounds good. I think really the target needs to be the commercial operations, the people who are taking housing away from renters and making a lot of money off that, which, you know, again, to be clear, that's most of what's happening in, uh, in, on Airbnb and BC right now. Mm-hmm. So I think New York goes a little far. I think the problem should probably start by saying no more commercial short-term rentals and see how that how far that takes us. Well, it is common, uh, you know, common to, to see somebody coming in and saying, okay, let's say it's a one-bedroom apartment and renting it from a, a landlord for $1,000, but they'll rent five or six or ten of these uh, uh, apartments uh, or condos, and then the monthly intake based on Airbnbs would be about $4,500 a month. I've heard of one case. So you're making a net profit of $1,500 per month per suite. Uh, at the same time, that is still those are probably 10 homes that easily could have been rented out to people who actually live here and need to live here. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, I think it's worth saying – you know, maybe I think the province needs to be encouraging a lot more rental housing construction. And maybe 10 years from now, there, there, you know, there are enough apartments to go around. And if people want to operate some, you know, some, some of these apartments as Airbnbs, then all power to them. Mm-hmm. But right now we're in such a housing crunch where there's so little housing compared to the, the needs of, of residents, particularly in the rental sector, mm-hmm. that it just seems totally crazy to allow you know, scarce apartments to be converted into what are basically legal hotels. What do you say to the argument that, look, Vancouver does have a housing crisis, but it also has a hotel challenge as well. I think we're about 1,500 hotels short in this city because our land costs are so high. We don't have enough hotels, particularly in the downtown core, but generally throughout the region, that this does help uh, deal with that challenge, which is not enough hotels here, hotel space. Yeah, I mean, it's a valid concern. And I think, you know, it's probably also a valid concern in smaller communities where they really rely a lot on tourism. Um, I, you know, I, I would always just want to point out that, you know, if you wind back the clock to the early days of Airbnb, it was mostly home sharing. Mm-hmm. And those home shares got kind of pushed out of the market by the commercial operators. I think if you ban the commercial operators, we should expect to see a, more home sharing. And that would be a good thing. You know, that I think that Airbnb as a platform is a perfectly reasonable way to, you know, book some accommodation. The problem is that we just, it's, it, you know, 
we're, we've been throwing the baby out with the bathwater in the sense of allowing all this housing to be converted to full-time Airbnbs. Let's get rid of that and let, let home sharing kind of make up some of the supply for mm-hmm. tourist accommodations. Dr. Walksman, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. Welcome back to the show. Will North Vancouver CMP have issued a violation ticket to the owner of the vehicle for uh, that uh, hit that North Vancouver overpass uh, the other day? Uh, the BC government has suspended the license of Whistler of the Whistler Transportation Company, whose truck driver did crash into that overpass. Uh, uh, the enforcement action will see all 22 of Whistler 99 courier and freightway trucks taken off the road until the conclusion of an investigation by the province. Now, as I said, uh, prior to the news, there have been 11 trucks that have struck overpasses this year and 13 last year. So why is this happening? And are the penalties that we have enough? Uh, well, Paul, Paul Doroshenko, who is a traffic lawyer at Acumen Law, was with um, spoke to Mike Smith earlier today. Uh, take a listen to his comments in regards to the tickets that, uh, that we're handing out for these accidents. Uh, we look at fines a lot of the time, and it's hard to it's hard to sort of connect them with the economic realities of our world, especially when you look at the damage. I mean, that that recent yeah. overpass that we know of just south of Knight Street still hasn't been repaired because it's probably going to cost millions and millions of dollars, and engineers are trying to figure it out. The fines are really disproportionate with the damage caused. But think yeah. about the other economic consequences in this case for this company. You know, they may have a huge insurance problem because your insurance is typically void if you do things like, you know, maybe void if you do things like leave the scene of an accident. So, you know, if you've caused a million dollars damage uh, in those circumstances, who's actually picking up the bill? That was Paul Doroshenko speaking to our Mike Smith earlier today. So what is causing all this? Is it the drivers? Is it the companies? It was. Is it the rush to deliver goods and services in a 24-7 world? Uh, Vijay Deep Singh Sahasi is president of the West Coast Trucking Association, an association that speaks on behalf of uh, the truck drivers. Uh, Mr. Sahasi, thank you for joining us today. Good to be here, sir. Uh, so tell me, um, over the last uh, 24, 48 hours, a significant conversation, of course, around what happened in North Van Vancouver in the overpass. Um, a lot of these incidents have occurred over the last couple of years. Uh, why do you think this is happening? Um, this could be there could be numerous reasons for these things which are happening. Uh, uh, tracker, I mean negligence for sure on part of uh, the operator, but then it's just not one person which we can be blamed. I mean there there are numerous reasons. Uh, it's a teamwork when wide load has to be transported. There are so many people who are involved in it. So all of them have to their, do their job perfectly mm-hmm. so that nothing of this sort is been seen. And uh, I think we have been lagging there somewhere. But uh, some have said, look, it's the, ultimately the driver uh, who should be, um, you know, uh, the, the safety inspection should be occurring with the driver. They're the ones driving. If there's anything that uh, they are not comfortable with, should, they should be raising their voice that this shouldn't be happening because the driver has safety protocols to go through. What do you say to that argument? It's easier said than done. Because I, I understand the driver has the utmost responsibility. But route planning, routes, detours, the infrastructure, there's so many things which are just overseen. A driver is given a job. I know he has to inspect everything and primarily he should be doing it. It's his primary job. But there are so many um, uh, factors while he's being there the peer pressure from the company or the customer, and, you know, they're asking you to cut corners. So human tendency is that some people 
just lose it and then they try and okay well just to accommodate it's a thankless job believe you me mm-hmm. if if everything goes well mm-hmm. nobody's going to say thank you driver for taking that extra effort but unfortunately if something goes wrong then it's hyped up when you say peer pressure uh, from companies what do you mean the companies need to get their loads delivered in this competitive world the companies are also just striving hard to just keep afloat so all those pressures just build up on the driver eventually because he has to see that the loads are being delivered the company keeps running so that he can just keep feeding his family uh and but it, so this is a supply chain issue in the sense that the the orders are tight uh, it's a competitive industry uh, people are just moving uh quickly uh, so that safety checks safety precautions are at times perhaps ignored or at the very least not you're not paying attention to them as much as you should be Absolutely then there's a lot of lack of infrastructure the bridges being built are also i mean why are these things happening for most of it in british columbia we have these sort of loads being moved in other states as well alberta our neighbors we don't we don't hear so much happening there because their bridges and the infrastructure is way better than what we have in bc we have tight spaces we we need uh, maybe we need a pilot car at more places than what we expect um, do you think there's uh, any argument to the fact that we are not educating uh, our drivers enough at, at our schools uh, when it comes to to uh, those who are uh, driving trucks? Because ultimately, you know, the industry there's lots of retirement there right now. You got long, young drivers, like a lot of industries. You see, baby boomers retiring, new workers coming in. Do you think a lot of this has to be? There's such a demand out there. Uh, that we're pushing people through school quickly enough that we just don't have the mentorship in some of these companies uh, to watch over these drivers. Absolutely yes I would say it's 100% correct there's a uh, new drivers need to be trained perfectly this is not a small machine it's a big machine and uh, if you're hauling oversized loads it's even a bigger responsibility so uh, inadequate training is one of the these things and not only the training is not only for the drivers it has to be there for the uh, the dispatchers too is they are they the dispatchers the route planners they need to be trained as well because they are the guys who are going to guide him he's just being guided for most part okay you take this route and you should be okay and there are wrong signages i can give you an example on highway 1 even today it's still there and we've been trying to get it fixed for the past 2 years and i don't know why is it taking too long and still it has not been done mm-hmm. the example is if you are going on highway 1 eastbound just uh, uh where the 216th overpass has been built just past that there's a sign which says your truck the uh, trailer is overheight right and the glover road which is being rebuilt now that was the bridge which comes just after that which was pretty much high but the actual concern is the railway bridge which is a low bridge so the sign is there and then there's no detour available not even a proper pull out if you go and look at the pull out it's not even it's a very small pull out even a truck cannot fit in there hmm. if if he tries to pull in the whole um highway is screwed now he has we were talking about peer pressure when you look in your rear view mirror you have so much of line up there the driver get confused okay now i just went through this bridge which was a, which was a glover road bridge and now he thinks he's okay and then just after that is the low bridge actually actual low bridge and you go and hit into that um some so, have said some have said the overpasses in future when we build new overpasses repair new overpasses they should be built higher uh it, so the, your your argument is that we need to be doing some of that in this province 
Absolutely, yes. We need over. Uh, if we are building newer ones, we have to keep into account that uh, we have to move this uh, high and wide machinery. We need that sort of uh, infrastructure and proper warning signs too. When I was talking about the warning sign, east side, when we are going on Highway One, if you talk about the city, there is a warning sign. What about the westbound part? There's nothing warning any driver. So driver is coming from out of the province. How would he really know that there's a low bridge coming up? Although he should have a proper route, I would say. But still, if he misses that, he has, there's no way that he he's going to get warned again. Does the increase increase penalties for drivers will that have, have any impact in your mind? If if you were to raise the penalties, I mean, uh, the one um, the one incident in Delta uh, in July, which uh, uh, led to a significant amount of damage on the overpass on the south side of the Massey uh, Tunnel. I think the repair bill there is one point four million dollars. It starts in November, go into next year. Um, whatever fine you're charging somebody is not going to cover the one point four million dollars the taxpayers will now have to pay. But do you think there should be a significant significant increase in penalties for drivers? Would that help? I would not agree to that. Why? It's okay. Yes, being penalties. Altogether, already there are existing penalties. There are quite a few. If you're taking too many penalties on the driver, this is this is discouraging the people to come into this industry, which is already having shortage of truckers. So proper training, I would emphasize on proper training rather than penalties. Mm. Do you think these, going back to the schools for a moment, there's been a lot of uh, uh, schools opening up in our province, catering to international students specifically. Uh, do you think at that level, perhaps that's some of the the challenge there, that may they may not be getting the appropriate education, uh, they may not be spending as much time. Do you think that has anything to do with some of the challenges we're seeing right now? I'm glad that you brought it up. We see that a newcomer who's coming from uh, overseas, they sometimes get licenses as soon as they come here from a different province maybe and then they get it transferred. And those guys who are getting a license right away are not even aware of the topography of the driving rules and regulations here in our country because they might be coming from a country where they drive on the other side of the road. So those guys are getting licenses as soon as they step in, whereas our own people who have been born and brought up here have to wait for the same licensing. So that, yes, for sure, that is one of the parts, which is a faulty part. And you, I think some people have been afraid to ask that question. Do you think, so you think the, 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 the training for new, new students, international students, has to be looked into, that the training isn't sufficient enough, and that may be at least partially why this is occurring? Is that a fair comment? Um, I would say they have to be trained before they're put on the roads, and especially if they're being put on with such a heavy equipment. For sure they should be, although I would advocate even they should be well-trained, even if they're operating a small car. Mm-hmm. But if you're operating a big truck and oversized load, oh, certainly you have to undergo extensive training before that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mr. Sahasi, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you so much, and I take uh, this opportunity to say that West Coast Trucking Association is for the drivers, and all our members are active truck drivers. I'm really glad and grateful that you got in touch with us, and thank you once again to you and to all your listeners. 
We were speaking to Vijay Deep Singh Sahasi, president of the West Coast Trucking Association. Uh, you know, he said there's a variety of reasons why these things are happening. Some of it is just the companies are pushing drivers so much. Uh, perhaps some of these overpasses, as we build new new overpasses, they should be built higher. It's a variety of reasons. We're joined now by our Jerry Mir Judd. So I wanted to talk to you about um, my interview with uh, Mr. Sahasi. Yeah. I mean, what do you think of all this? Uh, I think was it 11 uh, uh, incidents so far this year, 13 last year? Yep. I mean, someone says, oh, these things have happened before. Yeah, I know they've happened, but... It was an epidemic, my friend. I used to, so around the time uh, when we started seeing this sort of rash of bridge strikes, I worked over at CTN, the likes of Trish Jewison and Amber Belzer. So you're a traffic reporter, yeah. I've been a traffic reporter. And so I reported on these things when they happened. And it it was like a joke in the office. It was truly like a day couldn't go by without uh, a truck striking an overpass. So I found like a handy, of course, the government of British Columbia did have an easily accessible um, data table with all of these data about bridge strikes. So they have like location, carrier, cause, and enforcement. I'm not going to name any names, of course, but Mm -hmm. a lot of the reasons I'm seeing, at least officially by the investigating parties, there was eight incidences of no permit for the, for the, for the driver slash carrier. Yeah. Um, or no, just since, since 2021. Okay. Since 2020. So of these 24, um, eight of them had no permit, which includes yesterday's snafu. There was a permit issue. And then um, another. So what does that mean before you go? What's a no permit mean? They just didn't have a permit to. To maybe drive that big of a vehicle, or maybe mm. there was issues with like permits with operation for the carrier, maybe okay. something like this. Okay. Um, and then eight incidents of not measuring their load or failing to check if the equipment was up. So a lot of like I didn't the boom for the excavator that I was hauling was yeah. up and it clipped the overpass. Jeez. And uh, and then. Um, there was like five of just the they it's at blame, it puts it on the driver for not carrier slash driver for not following the approved route. Oh, they took a different route. Yes, and that okay, and that didn't, and so maybe that's also on the dispatch. Maybe mm-hmm. they didn't know that the height of the overpass of these impossibly tiny overpasses that we're building, I suppose. So it's it's a big problem, and the ones that I sort of anecdotally noted as the most damaging um, was the Highway One Glover Road one from last year. They're still working on Glover Road off of Highway 1 because of this excavator arm just like took out. Oh, yes, the, yes. I remember that one. Yes, that was a big one. They're still working on that one to my knowledge. That was and the one, one. The, the one in July in, mm-hmm. uh, by the by the Massey Tunnel there. Oh, yes. South side there. Yep. There's, uh, the damage is still there. Yep. I, I, I drive by it all the time. Mm-hmm. But they begin fixing that in November. Which is great. And it'll be ready, I think, by spring or summer next year. Like it's, okay. There's one lane going either way, mm-hmm. so it's usable. But mm-hmm. at the end of it, it's $1.4 million damage. And so. and for the traffic disruption like crazy. Same with the Canby Street overpass on Knight Street as well. That one is pretty, that was a big, big old traffic day. That was Jeez. nutty. And it was on my route to work and I worked from home that day, blessedly by, I don't know, the unseen forces of the universe. We're like, yeah. Jerry, don't go. Well, it's interesting, you know, say, well, they say it's not the education, but Mr. Sahasi says it's partially yeah. how these people are being educated, the new drivers. And I think part of it is just institutional knowledge. You're leasing these older drivers and perhaps not a lot of mentorship as well. Totally. It seems but like it, it's a really solo game. Yeah, but it still comes down to what a lot of our callers are saying. It's it's the driver. It's the driver. It's ultimately up to them. So we'll follow this, continue to oh, follow yeah. this one because I think it's legitimate. I think this is just ridiculous. A little bit. Over 20 in the last two years. Jerry, oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.